somewhat horrified this week to realise that 40 years ago this month, after my graduation, I joined Wycliffe Bible Translators to be a Bible translator and linguist. And uh, after my training, the, the first assignment I received, I was hoping to go abroad very early. You'll work this out that I, I'm, I'm very young or old, whatever the case, those of you adding years together. Uh, but Wycliffe asked me to be their first student secretary in, in the UK. And so for 18 months, I travelled the length and breadth of Britain, speaking in most of the universities in the country and in many colleges as well. <clears throat> I was even more manic in those days than I am now. In February 1972, the, the month before I went to my overseas assignment in Kathmandu for my field training, I took 65 meetings in 28 days. And I really enjoyed speaking, but there was one bit that I really didn't like. Uh, I had a little book with carbon copies in it, and every meeting you took, you had to do a report and send it back to headquarters. And it was full of really useful information like, you know, how many people were there? Uh, how many leaflets did you get rid of? How many people signed up? How many books did you sell? Did you get any expenses? Was there an offering? You know, all these really helpful pieces of information. And then you sent back the top carbon copy. This is day before computers to young people. Carbon is the sort of thing that you... Use. <laughs> Copying things, you know? Um, it's probably filed away in some large cabinet and forgotten forever in the archives. When Jesus performed the miracle that's our focus this evening, there must have been someone around who had a similar interest in accuracy in numbers. Have you noticed that? Notice, this is not just a large crowd, it's 5,000 men. Uh, Philip didn't just say to Jesus, it would cost a fortune to feed these people. He said, eight months' wages would not be enough to feed them all and give them a mouthful. Uh, the boy didn't have his piece or a few barley loaves and fish. He had, in fact, five small barley loaves and two small fish. And when they gathered up the fragments afterwards, they didn't say there was a lot left over. There were 12 baskets full. Someone was counting. And the numbers are included, not just of interest to be locked away, but because they are, in fact, an essential part of understanding the meaning of this miracle. In his Gospel, which is very different from the other three, Matthew, Mark and Luke, John selects just seven miracles of Jesus to tell his story. He calls them signs because they have significance, significance. Uh, and it's, what I want us to try and understand this evening, with God's help, is the purpose. Why did he choose this particular sign? What's it point to? This is the fourth then of these seven signs, it's commonly called the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, not to be confused with the 4,000, that was another story. So I want to focus around these numbers, and I've got a title that I rather like, but you may not, but if you don't, don't worry about it, The Mathematics of a Miracle, and it's recorded in John chapter 6, and you've got the pages in front of you. I have three things to say about the maths of this story. Okay? If you're not into maths, don't worry about it. Uh, I hope I can take you with me on this story. Okay, first thing I want to talk about is calculation. This is the only miracle of Jesus 
that is recorded in all four Gospels. If you're making notes, in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, here in John 6. There's a lot of scholarly debate about and disagreement as to whether John wrote his account of the miracle separately from the other three or whether he had their information in front of him and most likely assumed that the people already knew about this story. But it doesn't really matter because all the four stories tell the same essential story from different angles. We learn from the other Gospels that the twelve apostles had been sent out on a mission by Jesus and they just returned from this successful outing to their home base in the town of Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, sort of in the top western corner. There's a map on the screen for those who uh, can see that. Uh, and the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and as the, as the crowds gathering around Jesus were so large and demanding, Jesus decided to take them away to the far side of the lake, to the eastern side. To a solitary place on a mountainside. It's where the Golan Heights is today, if you've ever been to Israel, or you've certainly seen pictures of it, unfortunately, when usually in war. Uh, and off they go for a time of R&R, rest and relaxation. Uh, you can still visit the traditional site uh, today and imagine what an appropriate place it might be for a spiritual retreat. However, the crowds are anxious to see more healing miracles. And they anticipate where Jesus and his followers are going. So as they cross over in the boat, uh, there's a huge crowd, they can't all get into boats, and so they, they run around the top end of the lake. And as Jesus arrives, or shortly after they arrive, and they're just about unpacking their picnic baskets or whatever they did on this particular occasion, here's this huge crowd of people waiting for them. And so there's no real rest, it's just future ministry for Jesus and his disciples. But there is a further problem which Jesus anticipates. It becomes more apparent from the other Gospels as the day wears on. How can such a large and hungry crowd be fed in such an isolated place? So Jesus asked Philip a question which we learn is a test question. Okay? This is like a maths question, alright? When Jesus looked up, verse 5, and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Uh, some people believe he asked Philip in particular, because Philip came from Bethsaida, which was the nearest town on the map. And presumably Philip would have known where all the 24-hour supermarkets were, where they could you know, get what they needed or whatever they had in those days. Or, or maybe he just happened to be the next disciple near to Jesus and he picked him and said, Philip, whatever the case, it's a test. It's a mass test. Not just for Philip, but for all the other disciples as well who are present. You see, these disciples have been learners with Jesus. The Greek word disciple, interestingly, is mathetes, from which we derive maths, which just means calculate. All right? These have been math students in the school of faith with Jesus for some time now. They've seen his incredible ability to perform miracles, to turn water into wine, to heal the sick. Here's the test. Would they transfer what they had learned of Jesus in previous situations to this present challenge? Would they pass the test? Sadly, no, for we see that Philip gives 
the wrong answer. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, the literal translation here is not eight months' wages, it is 200 denarii. Okay, you need to understand, a denarius, that's singular, plural, if you know your Latin, if you did that at school with the test, most people don't do it nowadays, but one denarius, lots of denarii, okay. A denarius was the pay for a day labourer for one day's pay. So the translation here is, try to, if, if it just said 200 denarii, you would think, well, is that a lot? Is it a little? What was the exchange rate? You know. So the translators have tried to put it in their meaningful form and say, it's equivalent to eight months' wages for a labourer. All right? Philip, I think, was, was probably one of these guys who was really good at mental arithmetic. I like to think of Jesus says to him, you know, how are we going to feed these people? And he goes, well, let me see now. How many people are in Charlotte Chapel? Five, ten, three, three, four. 5,000, okay, let's think. Uh, um, one denarius would be enough to get bread for 25 people. Divide 5,000 by 25 and you get 200 denarii. Why? 200 denarii, you wouldn't even get a mouthful hardly. Or maybe you just click to figure out the air, I don't know. <laughs> but, but the point of the story is this. Philip is an example of good mental arithmetic, but bad spiritual arithmetic. For his calculation leads him to only one conclusion. There is no way we have enough money to buy food to feed this crowd. It is impossible. And so it is, humanly speaking. But he's done his sums wrong because he's forgotten to include one factor, or rather one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his calculations. However, before we judge him too harshly, Let's examine for a moment our own faith and the challenge we face as churches and as individuals. If you're a Christian this evening, if you've been a Christian for some time, I've been a Christian since 1961, which again is a frightening thought, how little distance I've come, that I should have come in those 47 years. Terrible. Okay. I've seen God at work in the past in my life. No doubt you have if you've been a Christian any length of time or even a short time because God has saved you. Now, what you've learned of Jesus in the past, the test is this. Can you transfer what you've known of Jesus in the past to the present crisis you face or challenge? Uh, we learned this week that almost all the students taking A-level exams passed, which is great for them, well done. Uh, but this is a test that most of us fail. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, later on in the story, we'll see in a moment, the people talking to Jesus refer back to a, a fantastic story in the Bible about how God gave the people of Israel manna in the desert. Manna was this food that came down from heaven that God sent. When they looked at it, they said in Hebrew, manna, what is it? And that's what they called it, manna, okay? If you've ever wondered what manna means. But think of the circumstances. The people of Israel escaped from Egypt, all right? They're en route to the promised land. They've only been a few days going. Here comes a big crisis, no food. Or very little, nice food. What are they to do? Well, you would think they might have said, well, this is no problem because just a few days ago, the Lord parted the waters of the mighty Red Sea. We passed through on dry ground. The greatest army in the ancient world of Egypt and Pharaoh and his chariots were swallowed up by the sea. 
Therefore, we have nothing to worry about because the Lord will surely meet our need. Because in the past he did and he's certainly going to do it here. No, they grumbled against God and against Moses. And they said, if only we were back in Egypt where we had leeks and garlic. Yet so often we are like them. You see, maybe you've not been a Christian very long. You're not a Christian at all. If you're not, you need to start out on this journey. It's an exciting adventure, proving God in your experience. Okay, in the first lessons in the discipleship class, the Lord occasionally throws you right in the deep end at the beginning. But more often than not, he puts you in situations where you prove him for pence before, before you have to trust him for pounds or thousands of pounds. In the journey of faith, the Lord takes you into increasing situations of challenges that stretch your faith. That's why we've been praying for Claire. Nita and I lived in Pakistan. We know some of the pressures she'll face as a woman living there. The Lord will stretch your faith in situations that she's not been in before. You can go to a city. We lived in a city of a million people and uh, we used to take pictures of the streets and it was like, you know, you know spot the ball, well, spot the woman. There's no women around. It's a male society. It creates its own challenges, particularly for women. Now, in those situations, God puts you in situations which stretch your faith and allow you to say, I proved God in the past. Now, the test is, can I prove him in the present? Yeah, here's, here's, here's something else that often happens, and you'll know about this if you've been a Christian in a length of time. When... When the Lord brings these fresh challenges, they usually come at times when we feel least prepared to meet them. In fact, times when you could do with a good sleep and maybe a decent holiday. And again, this is no accident. Because it's in those situations, Colin proved this this week, he came back from his holidays and he had a great rest and he was nicely refreshed and everything. And then on Thursday evening, Rodney was taken to hospital and I said to Colin, I think you need to preach on Sunday morning. Well, he didn't have the time, you know, humanly speaking, to do all the preparation. But God enabled him because in those situations, when we're least prepared, we're more likely to depend upon God and his power and his strength. That's the test of faith. Yet how often we think only in terms of human calculations and conclude that anything more, let alone a lot more, is impossible. We can never do it. It's impossible. What about our situation as a church? In a relatively large church like Charlotte Chapel, the great danger is complacency. We calculate, we say, we're doing fine. We rely on our own resources. But what is the level of our faith and expectation? Is it limited to what is humanly possible and excludes anything in practical terms that is humanly impossible? Outside our doors is a vast multitude of people. Jesus described them in his day as crowds of people, sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. How can we hope to feed them? Our resources are so limited. We're barely meeting our budget. You know, we talk in such human terms about these kind of things. So we settle for the status quo and we reassure ourselves, well, we're doing better than most people in most churches. So what? Now, there is nothing wrong with making calculations. God isn't against maths. So long as they show us our own utter inadequacy and then point us in expectant faith to Jesus Christ 
who alone can do miracles, for he is the Son of God. This is the lesson the disciples need to learn and which the crowd learned by experience. So, here's my second point after calculation. Point two, multiplication. Philip has made his calculations. But another disciple chips into the conversation with information which reveals a totally inadequate solution. Another of his disciples, in verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? It's not that there is nothing available. Notice this. There is something, but it is too little. Two small fish and five small barley loaves. It's the food of the poorer classes in those days. Uh, The fish that were native to the Sea of Galilee, for those like me who are tropical fish keepers, the fish in Galilee are called tilapia galilea. They're mouth breathers and they breed very quickly and they're usually quite small. You can get them at the fish shop if you want to keep tropical fish, but, well, a variety of tilapia. And, and small loaves made from barley. And Andrew says it's, it's just inadequate to feed so many. Five small barley loaves. He didn't say five loaves. He says five small barley loaves and two small fish to feed 5,000 men. And some people believe, as they did in this sort of male-dominated society, he was only counting the men when he did his calculations. There were women and children as well. Some people believe there might have even been 20,000 people there. It's so little, but what they need to learn is, it is enough for the miracle that follows. Now, of course, Jesus the Word, we read about it in John 1, through whom all things were made out of nothing, ex nihilo, could have produced bread and fish or anything else out of thin air. Just as he could have produced wine out of nothing at a feast. But he uses ordinary water and by a miracle of transformation he turns it into the best wine. And he uses small fish and small loaves and by a miracle of multiplication there is more than enough for this crowd and abundant provision. So Jesus instructs his disciples to organise the seating arrangements on the green grass. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And the crowds do not get as Philip feared, just a mouthful each. Even that was beyond Philip's faith. They have enough and there is more than enough. When everyone has eaten their fill, Jesus tells the disciples to collect at what remains so nothing is wasted. Verse 13, so they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Such is the generosity of God and the power and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. He never does things by half measures. I'll just give you enough to get by with. And you'll still be hungry, but you know, it'll, it'll keep you going until you get to the next shop or town. No, his abundant grace and power is such. Now, as with all the miracles of Jesus, people try to explain these away. I may have told you a story before, but I was a good boy at school. I went to a grammar school. I only once got thrown out of class. And it was in an RE class when the teacher was telling us about this miracle. He, w- he was a nice man. He was a lay preacher, but he was theologically liberal, put it this way. And he told us the usual story. You know, this wee boy brought out his piece for the loaves and fishes, and everybody else had their own piece that they were hiding under their cloaks. And as soon as he brought his out, they were all so embarrassed that they all brought theirs out, and they all shared out. It's a miracle about, you know, being kind and nice to one another, which is good, but it's not what the story's about. It's the first time I'd ever heard this in class, and I laughed out loud. 
and the teacher saw me laughing, and I was usually a very polite boy, you know. And he said, boy, what are you laughing at? And I said, I'm sorry, sir, I find that more incredible than the miracle. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, boy! <laughs> and I was thrown out of class. Well, we don't know how Jesus did it. He simply took the loaves, gave thanks, then they were distributed to everyone. Of course, humanly speaking, it's impossible. Five loaves and two fish cannot feed 5,000 people plus women and children with 12 baskets left over. But when you factor into the equation the power of God, then anything is possible. I can never understand people who say, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but I can't believe in miracles. Once you believe he's the Son of God, then everything is possible. That's the whole point. And this leads us to the real question the miracle raises. The real question that we meant to read from this is not how did he do it, but who is it that can do this? What is the significance of the sign? Now, tragically, you need to keep your Bibles in front of you and look at this carefully. It's quite a complex argument and I don't have time to develop it because time is already going. But uh, the crowd who benefited from the miracle also failed the mass test of multiplication. Okay, first of all, they make the right deduction when they see the miracle. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet, capital P, who is to come into the world. Now, these are Jewish people. Who is the prophet that they're referring to? You probably won't know unless you know the Hebrew background, the Hebrew scriptures background. Uh, There were many promises in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, about the coming Messiah. Uh, Many of them made by the prophets who look forward. And among the earliest of these is a promise made by a man who most people don't think of primarily as a prophet, but he was, Moses. The man through whom God's law came was a prophet who brought God's word. And hidden in the law of Moses is a scripture that the Jewish people knew because they looked for its fulfillment. It's in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Now, when they saw the miracle of Jesus, they correctly linked it with this scripture way back in, in Deuteronomy and said, this is it. Now, now, why the connection? Well, they say, the one who was miraculously given us bread in this deserted place, miracle bread, is like Moses who miraculously gave us manna to eat in the desert. So they make the right deduction, but then... They draw the wrong conclusion. It's significant that John tells us this miracle took place shortly before Passover, when the Jews remembered their deliverance from Egypt under this same Moses. So the excited crowd put two and two together and made five, or three probably. They thought, this is the opportune moment to strike. A blow against the occupying Romans. And that Jesus is God's earthly deliverer. Just as Moses delivered us from the power of the Egyptians and their army, surely this prophet who has come has got the power to do this, to deliver us. And Jesus knows the crowd, and 5,000 is a very significant number, a considerable force, emphasizes the danger. Jesus knows they intend to make him king by force. And that is why he purposely withdraws from the scene higher up the mountain. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Many people still make the same mistake. They see Jesus in political terms, a political messiah. He didn't come for that. 
Yes, he is the fulfilment of the promise of Moses and all the Old Testament scriptures. But the wrong conclusion is this. Moses didn't promise a king, he promised a prophet. Jesus has a greater and more lasting purpose. He will not be diverted from his task by these people who want to seize him and make him king of an army. He will not enter Jerusalem at the head of an army riding on a stallion, but meek and lowly riding on a donkey. But once again, most of the people fail to understand. They fail to believe. And this leads us to the third and final point. From calculation and multiplication, the story ends finally with subtraction, point three. Will you notice again the numbers in the story? It is said that a week is a long time in politics. Here we see that two days is a long time in ministry, with a rapid reduction in popularity. The incident begins on day one. Here's Jesus on this rising crest of popularity. Huge crowds of people following him. He's high in the poles, if they have them in those days. The mass movement is so great that he and his disciples, they can't even find a quiet place for rest. Everywhere they go, they're swamped by people. So we see 5,000 plus at the start of day one. A great crowd of people followed him, verse 2. By the end of the next day, it ends where the ministry of Jesus began. The numbers are drastically reduced with just the 12 people left by the end of day two. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, it's vitally important you understand at this point because you're either in the 5,000 or the 12 this evening. You're either in the ones who leave or the ones, the few, who stay. Why was there such a large subtraction from 5,000 down to 12? Now, John tells us in great detail from verses 25 through to the end of verse 59. And I don't have time to read it all, but let me just try and take you through the reason why the people left for the same fundamental reasons remain the same today. Let me summarize. The reason why the 5,000 left can be summarized by two statements that kind of balance one another. First of all, the people wanted bread. In the evening following the miracle, Jesus goes up the mountain. The disciples cross back over the Sea of Galilee, leaving Jesus still on the mountainside. The next miraculous sign is described as Jesus walks over the water and to the amazement and terror of the disciples, they see him walking on the water. He gets into the boat with him and goes to the other side. We're not focusing on that. That's in verses 18 to 21. Now, the next morning, the crowd who had stayed on the other side because they knew Jesus hadn't left when the other boat left with the other 12 disciples, they're still waiting for Jesus. They realize he's not there. So they cross back, this time by boat, some of them, others by foot, back to Capernaum. And they find him in the synagogue. And the first question they've got for him is, Rabbi, verse 25, you need to look at it in front of you. Rabbi, they said, when did you get here? Now, Jesus doesn't answer this. Notice what Jesus says. He gets right to the point. He says, you're only looking for me for one reason, You want bread. Verse 26. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, in other words, you didn't understand the the maths here, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And the crowd said, well, what work must we do to get this? And Jesus tells them, 
That what they seek, verse 33, is the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd say, wow, this sounds great. That's just what we need. And then Jesus makes this astonishing claim in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But here's the problem. They don't believe in him. They won't believe in him. Here's why they left, okay? They want the bread, but not the bread of life. They want the bread, but not the bread of life. Look what they say in verse 41. We don't have time to read. You can read when you get home. It's a complex argument in here, but I'm trying to summarize the essentials. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They've missed the point. The significance of the sign, they fail to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The sign says, only, only, only the Son of God can do this. Instead, they relegate him to the status of a human being. They say, who does he think he is? So they miss out on the bread that he offers, which is not human bread. It is the bread of life that is given to those who believe and trust in him. And when he goes on to say, I am the bread of life, and the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, verse 51, and you need to identify with me by eating my flesh, drinking my blood, they don't like this costly talk of sacrifice. They've been impressed with the miracle. They recognize that Jesus is the prophet, but they fail to do what Moses said, you must listen to him. They don't want to hear Instead, after hearing what Jesus said, verse 60, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And this leads to the tragic outcome. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It is the great subtraction. And little has changed down the centuries. For human nature is still the same. People are still more concerned in miracles than words. They're still more concerned with the physical and physical satisfaction than the spiritual satisfaction Christ comes to bring. They're still more concerned with the temporal and not the eternal. They still want the benefits, but they're not prepared to count the cost and pay the price. And so they're attracted to Jesus for a time, but they fail to follow him. I've been the pastor of this church for 16 years. I've been in pastoral ministry for 25 years. I tell you this, friends, if everyone who's not a Christian I preached the gospel to over those years was in Charlotte Chapel this evening, you wouldn't get them even in the Norlock in Princess Street Gardens. For every hundred people who come in and hear the gospel, only a few eventually stay and remain because they want bread, but not the bread of life. I say they, but I should say we. Are we in the crowd who leave, or the few who remain? It must have been a very disappointing moment for the twelve disciples. You know, there's nothing like being popular, isn't there? You know, having a full church, lots of people there, you know, big crowds of people. We think too much, friends, of numbers. God is not disinterested in numbers. Long that churches were fuller and that more and more people came in. But they're not in the last analysis what really counts. And if you're reliant on numbers, you're going to be disappointed because people will leave. And the hard things in ministry. Sometimes breaks your heart. People come in and they've got bread that they need and you work with them and you help them with their marriage, you help them with their finances, you help them with their kids and what their problems are. And, and I will do that I constantly. We expend our time in our pastoral team doing that. 
But when all is said and done, when the problem is solved, do the people remain or do they say, I don't want that. You go to the coffee afterwards, you'll see folk off the street selling the big issue, come in and they want coffee. And I say to them, why not come into the service? We can offer you far more as well as nice coffee in here. They don't want to know. It's tragic. Offer them far more. must have been hard for the disciples. You know, a great popular movement. And suddenly Jesus preaches this sermon and at the end of the sermon, everybody leaves. You know, one or two folk have left. Maybe they've got to go early, but maybe they don't. I don't know. And this evening, we stay there for a minute. But, you know, imagine if I'm preaching here, you know. It's not a suggestion now, but, you know, if one by one you begin to get up and go out and say, this is too hard, who can hear this? You know, and in the end, there's only the elders left. And Jesus turns to them and he says, to the twelve, he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Big question. Now, the answer of Peter. Peter's a great guy, and my namesake. He usually says, have something absolutely brilliant or something absolutely awful. This was a good day. Okay? The reason the twelve remained. Look at what it says. We're coming nearly to the end. Just stay with me, okay? Peter answers, Sam Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. He confesses two things of supreme importance, which the crowd failed to grasp and understand. First of all, he says, they re- we remain. They remain because of the value they placed on the words of Jesus. See, we focus as a church on the Scriptures and on God's Word. It's not just because, you know, Charlotte Chapel's into preaching and, you know, that's why they, it, it gives Colin and Peter and the others running a kick, you know, to be able to preach. We preach because we believe that when we preach God's word, God speaks. These are the words of eternal life. Not just bread. The bread of life. Yes, there is a cost of following Christ. But there is a cost, an eternal cost, and not following him. A benefit, an eternal benefit, and blessing. These are the words of eternal life. And linked with receiving and believing this is receiving and believing Christ. For Peter's confession reveals, secondly, the faith they placed in the person of Christ. They recognize that he is the Holy One of God, one set apart from all others, the sinless Son of God. They don't understand yet that one day he will give his flesh for the life of the world. The Holy One will become sin so that in him they might become righteous. But one day they will understand. But for now, with the level of faith they have, and we know far more because we're after all this, they understand who Jesus is. Now, that's the point of the miracle. That's why John includes these seven signs. At the end of his gospel, he gives us the right answer. If you, you know, the Gospel of John is an evangelistic Gospel. It is written for people who are not believers to understand who Jesus is. And if you've not got the point, by the end of the Gospel, there's a kind of postscript story at the end of John 21, but the real Gospel itself, in one sense, ends at the end of chapter 20. Here's what John says. To understand the significance of the sign. Listen carefully. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that, what? You may understand that Jesus does great miracles. The best, no? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the point. If you get your maths wrong here, You've lost it. 
Failed. Excluded from the kingdom. Get this right and you receive eternal life by believing in Jesus and his name. Almost finished. Really have. Here's the conclusion. These 12 are in the minority. Here there's a huge crowd and they end up with 12. I mean, what kind of... What kind of you know, if this was a political convention, it's Barack Obama giving his speech and everybody leaves and he's only got a handful of people left. How's he going to become American president? Or John McCain, to keep things even here. Um, it's not very successful. You've got, you've got 12 left and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, you're a devil. Boy. And look at the 12. Look at what kind of guys they are. It's impossible. Yeah, but there's a miracle going to take place of multiplication. These 12 will turn the world upside down. And that because of them, humanly speaking, that's why you and I are here, this church is here, why, why the gospel is spread throughout the world today. You see, God doesn't require great numbers. Just those who believe in him, trust in him, follow him whatever the cost. Those who bring what little you have, five loaves and two small loaves and five two small fish, and bring them to Christ, whatever little you have, and he'll multiply it, bless it, and use you. But the crucial question is the question he asked the twelve. You do not want to leave two, do you? It's the question each of us needs to answer. Some of you may be professed followers of Christ and you came in this building this evening and in your heart of hearts, you really want to leave. In fact, it's possible to have left and yet still be sitting in the pews. Because you've left in your heart. You've left the course of Christ. Are you disappointed that God has not done what you expected? Is his teaching too hard to accept? Does the cost of following Christ seem too great? Now, what is your answer? Do you want to leave us? Well, Christ will allow you to leave. That's the frightening thing. But whatever little faith you have, if you reach out and say, Lord, Lord, it's tough, but I want to stay. I want to be with you. Because you have the words of eternal life. And we believe and know that you are the Son of God. Let's pray together.